Well, today's date is February 28th, 2016. And you can go ahead and put the title of the message. The, me- the title of the message this morning is Ready, Set, Go. And this message is, uh, it's been about really 14 years in the making. And um, I just want to share it with you guys. I got a lot in my heart. There's a lot going on in our lives. Um, and I, we just wanted to share our testimony and, and where we're at, where we came from, where we hope we're head we're going, and um, just as a group, because a few of you, we've, we've shared some things, but we wanted to share as a group. But if you give me that next slide. It starts off with ready, and um, this is, a, this is a, a notification from God. When, when you're called into ministry, when you're... When he speaks a promise to you, um, the first thing you hear is ready yourself. Let me ask you, I, I kind of want to see this morning what, what our congregation looks like. This morning, if you believe that you're at LCMF because God is preparing you in, in, something, in some aspiration of ministry, yes, you're doing ministry now, but you feel that as preparation for something in the future, raise your hand this morning. Wow, that is about 85% of the room. Really, that's what I believe makes LCMF different than any other churches. I know there's a lot of churches out there that are like LCMF, but it's different because there's a heart to move forward in ministry. Now, let let me ask you this morning. How many of you this morning believe it's on foreign soil? Wow, that's about... 15 to 20% of the church believes that it's on foreign soil. That's amazing. How many churches this morning uh, wonder, people in their heart, it's being birthed and cultivated, the desire to, to go to another country and serve the Lord. It's difficult. Serving the Lord, you know, even in any state is difficult, but to leave and go to another country is much more difficult. But let me ask this morning, how many of you this morning... Believe that God has spoken something to you and he's tarried on it and, and you don't see it yet. Maybe it's a, it's a wife, it's a husband, it's a job, it's a house, it's a healing, something. This morning, you know that God spoke to you. You didn't imagine it. God spoke it to you and it feels like he's tarrying on the promise. Raise your hand this morning. Okay, we're looking at close to 50%. So this... this Message should apply to everyone in here. It's not just about ministry. It's about when God speaks to us. Every time he speaks a promise to us, it should activate something in us. And the first thing we hear is ready. And you've, you've heard the, um, the saying when there's a race going on, you hear on your marks, get set, and go. To shorten that down, you can say ready, set, go. All three commands have three different actions. You know, you're out, you're out playing around, doing your own little thing, and you hear, on your marks, or get ready. You know that you have to stop what you're doing, and you have to proceed to where your position is. If you're in someone else's position, you're not ready. You need to be on your mark. You need to be ready for what God has for you. Let's go to the next slide. This blessed me. How many of you know 
the armor of God. We talk about the armor of God. One of the least things talked about is the shoes. We like the sword. We like the shield. We like the breastplate. We like the helmet and the belt. But I don't know if I've ever heard about the shoes. And it says in Ephesians chapter 6, you can go and you can look at it, but it, it talks about all the different aspects of the Christian armor, God's armor. And it says in Ephesians 6, 15, it says, And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Uh, King James says that your feet be shod with preparation. So what are the shoes? Readiness. Oh, preparation, readiness. That word readiness means the act to get ready. That our feet, I mean, can you imagine if we have the whole armor and we don't have our shoes on? You're not ready. That our feet would be, it says fitted, but it means protected and prepared, ready to go. An army has to have their sandals on. Now, this is coming at a point where Israel didn't have an army, so the, probably what Paul's talking about is more of what a Roman, uh, just a, not a Roman centurion, but just a regular foot soldier. A foot soldier was vitally important, and his feet wear was extremely important. Because show, me, show the next slide. Those are not easy to put on. This is Roman sandals at that time. And that word shod or preparation actually means to bind your laces. There's a whole lot of laces on there. And because it was extremely important that when they were fighting that their feet, rem the shoes remained on their feet. And there was... There was always a command to get ready. And when they said get ready, everyone got down and put their shoes on. And there was this whole procession of binding up and uh, getting their feet ready because they're about to move. But ready means get ready. It doesn't mean set and it doesn't mean go. But it means get ready. Amen. So when God speaks a promise to us, when He puts a ministry in our heart, the first thing we hear is readiness. Preparation. Begin to respond to what God put in your heart. The shoes of your armor is that preparation that you're doing. Let's go to the next slide. Now, some translations are kind of all over the place. Some of them actually said that the shoes were the gospel. But the shoes are the readiness to go preach the gospel. And we'll look at the scriptures. I know the text is small. We're going to go through it. I'll just read it to you. It says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the gospel. And how beautiful on the mountains are the feet. The feet represent the ability to take the gospel. It may not be in a foreign country. It may not be in a position in church. It may be in your own home. But how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Isaiah said this. And we see the writer of Romans, Paul, 
he is going to quote it. And Paul leaves actually a little small piece out. He says, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. He's quoting Isaiah there. This morning, we're going to look at going. Because how can they hear unless we go? But how can we go unless we're sent? And so there's a a correct um, procession. When we hear go, sometimes in our eagerness, we think we, I mean, when we hear get ready. You know, young man like me, and there's a lot of young men here. There's a lot of young women. There's a lot of, a lot of uh, just eagerness. Sometimes when we hear get ready, we thought God said go. Because surely if he told me that uh, the Lord was going to bless me with a wife or a husband, it's going to happen like in a couple of days, right? Because he's just getting you ready. It's going to happen in a couple of days. We had some, um, some missionaries, uh, the Lions, they came a couple years ago and they shared with us and the question was asked, if you had one thing to share with this body about getting ready, what are they? David said, well, I have a couple points. He says, one of them is... You need to be out of debt. If you want to go on the mission field, he said, you need to be out of that debt. And that spoke to me that you have to be ready in your finances. You can't have uh, things holding you back. So if you feel like you are called to ministry, if you feel like you are called to missions, if you feel like you're called to be married or you feel like you're called to whatever God has told you to get ready, you need to make sure that some things from your past get dealt with. That they don't prevent you from going forward. You can say, well, if God said it, then He's just going to fix it. We're going to deal with that this morning. So right now, what promises has God spoken to you? Because sometimes we hear the promise and we get ready and when we don't see it, we stop getting ready. We get distracted by some things and... We just forget. Sometimes the actual vision or the thing that God's spoken to you will actually die. You, you will think, maybe I missed it. I mean, we're human. Come on. We've missed it before. And sometimes when you just knew it was God, but it doesn't happen. I mean, I, every time I hear this, I hear, of, I think of Lazarus. You know? I'm sure Lazarus' sisters were waiting and waiting. Jesus is going to get here. We sent word. He's coming. He's coming. But now their brother's in the grave for three days. I thought Jesus was coming. He said he was going to come. That promise had died. But I thank the Lord that he is the God of the resurrection. Amen? Amen. Amen. We have to be ready... And there is a season for readiness because when the next commands come, when go happens, you don't have time to be ready. Think about the foolish virgins. There were ten of them. 
And they were going out to meet the bridegroom. But what happens? It says, but he tarried. Our God is a patient God. He is long-suffering. And he is a tarrying God. To tarry means is on his time. And we wait on his time. Because he's not slack. He's just on his time. We're on central time. He's on God's time. <laughs> when, the, when the call, go, came to the virgins, five of them realized they were not ready. They had prepared if he would have come during the day. But the Lord came at night and it required preparation. It required them doing something. And so, guess what? The call comes and they said, well, we're, we want some of your oil. And they said, no, we can't share our oil. But you can go where we got it. And so five of them said, let's go, let's go get prepared. And so they go. They go into the market. They get oil and they come back. But it's too late. You need to prepare when you hear, get ready. And we need to make it our whole life's purpose when we hear, Get ready. There's another um, story, and I wasn't going to... I'm going to watch the time. I, uh, I wasn't going to read it, but I feel this is important this morning. And so we're going to go... It's not even in my slides, but we're going to go to Second Samuel chapter 18. Now, some of you may pronounce his name different, but I pronounce it Ahimaz because it's the easiest. But Ahimaz is the son of Zadok. Zadok is the high priest, and so therefore he is in the lineage of ministers, right? You know how um, anyone who has any aspirations for ministry or is in ministry, you look at your children as continuing in that ministry. It's a heritage, right? And so Ahimaz... His father is the high priest, Zadok. He's a son of Zadok. Uh, they're, they're actually a specific family of priests. And at one point, they were the only ones allowed to minister to the Lord. And so he comes from the most refined genetics, the most refined culture. Surely he's called to ministry, right? Well, him is, is uh, he's eager, like a lot of us. I think he would have done real well at LCMF. <laughs> in 2 Samuel, um, let's start in verse 19 of chapter 18. I'll give you a, a quick backdrop. Ahimez is the son of Zadok. But Absalom, which is David's son, was um, looking to take David's life. He was already influencing Israel to separate the kingdom right there. Um, and they were pursuing, there, there was a war going on. It wasn't really a war, but they were trying, it was, um, there was an uprising. David is king, and one of his sons is, um, it's like a coup. He's got an army on his side. He's got Israel on his side. And he's trying to turn them against his father. And he's desiring to kill his father. 
So Absalom, the son of David, uh, there's three armies sent out, and Ahimaaz is in one of them. And they catch Absalom, and they kill him. But the command was not to kill him. David said, deal, how did he say? He said, deal lightly with my son, because he's still David's son. It's not his firstborn, but he's still his son, and he's saying, look, I understand. Just David is showing compassion. He cares for Absalom. He says, just deal uh, fairly with him. And so they killed Absalom. And now somebody's got to bring word. Oh, it's time to bring a message. And Ahimaaz says, I want to do it. I want to be the one to go tell David that we just killed his enemy. I want to be the one to declare this news. And listen to what it says. Now Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has delivered him from the hand of his enemies. See, he's thinking enemy. Doesn't realize he's about to go tell David his son is dead. Go to the next slide. Or uh, 20. Listen to what it says. You are not the one to take the news today. I love that part. You're not the one to take the news today. Your day's coming, but not today. You're not ready. I mean, in ministry, how many of us think we're ready today? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> we think we're ready, right? Yes. But he's being told, not today. Your day's coming. He didn't say never. He says just not today. Joab told him, he says, you may take the news another time, but not today. Because this news, you don't want to be the one. This takes maturity. And you're not mature enough to take this news. You may take the news another time, but you must not do so today because the king's son is... This is not good news. Go to the next slide. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. So here goes the Cushite. He's a much more mature man. He's a tried man. He's trusted and they're sending the Cushite. He's older. I can prove it. Watch. Go to the next slide. Ahimaaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. He's pressing and he's pushing. So Joab says, All right, go ahead. Go ahead. Run then. Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. First of all, he said he was going to run behind him, right? Now he's going to outrun him. He's younger, he's faster, and he's ready. This is his day. He's launching his ministry today. Let's go to the next. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. He's outpaced this Cushite. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. Why? Because if they feared David, they would send a whole bunch of people. 
Because we don't know how David's going to react. Men have been put to death for this type of news before. The king said, if he is alone, then he must have good news. Uh, and the man came closer and closer. Let's go to the next. Then the watchman saw another man running. And he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it seems to me that the first one runs like a hemass. Son of Zadok. They knew even how he ran. <laughs> He's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Notice what David keeps saying. It's good news. It's good news. It's good news. Then Ahimaaz called out to the king. All is well. All is well. Now Ahimaaz is a little confused here because... He's thinking he's about to deliver the message that your enemy has been killed. And David's worried about his son. So he starts off with all is well. He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord your God. He has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my Lord, the king. The king asked, is the young man Absalom safe? At this moment, Ahimaaz realizes, I'm about to tell the king, not his enemy's dead, but his son is dead. And David's not, David is, is my son safe? This was not the response Ahimaaz was waiting for. In all his eagerness, in all his ability to outrun the Cushite, what happens? I saw a great confusion just as Joab was about to sing, send the king's servant and me, your servant. But I don't know what it was. He's saying, something happened, but I don't know what it was. He choked up. He couldn't deliver the news. Not because he physically wasn't able, not because he wasn't eager to deliver the news. He wasn't ready. He wasn't ready to be able to deliver the news. Let's see what the Cushite does. Let's go to the next slide. The king said, stand aside. See, he put him aside. He realized, uh, you've got nothing to tell me. But the Cushite does. Stand aside. So he stepped aside and stood there. Next verse. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord, the king, hear the good news. Oh, Cushite's starting off pretty much the same way, right? The Lord has delivered you today from all who rose up against you. He hasn't said anything different yet than him has. Next, next verse. The king asked the Cushite, Is the young man, Absalom, safe? Listen to what this Cushite says. The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. He was able to not let David deter him from the news that he had to share. See, sometimes where you're going, you think you're ready, but you don't know what you're about to face. And Absalom, in, I mean, um, Ahimez, in all his eagerness, in all his ability, his lineage is telling him, you're ready. And we see he's not ready. He's not ready to go. His time is coming. Uh, Joab didn't say never. He just said not today. 
you're not the one to bring this news. This news is some difficult news, and you're not going to be able to do it. Ready is not go. When you hear, get ready, it doesn't mean go. In ministry, it's clear, but what about when it is? That we have a lot of singles here, and so some of these singles know they heard from the Lord that they're not going to be single forever, that God is going to bring them a significant other. But sometimes, I mean, look, I've been, out, I've been away from my wife for a week, so I, I, I've been reminded I hate being single. <laughs> That's why I got married. Hmm? And when it's something like that, every day seems to be a year. And every year seems to be a decade. And you say, I'm losing time, God. I'm losing time. But are you getting ready? Women, if you, if you know you're getting married, do you have money for a dress? Do you have your dress picked out? You, if you're going to get married, there's a wedding. It costs money to have a wedding. Right? Are you ready? Men, you ready? Are you ready? It takes financial responsibility. What's your credit scores look like? What's your debt look like? See, you want to be a him as I want to go today, God. I want to go today. God's saying, get ready. Let me get ready. Because there might be 10 years between ready and go. There might be 14 years between ready and go. Let's go on to the next one, set. The second in the command is set. When you hear ready, it means get on your mark. But set means to put yourself in a position. It actually means to put yourself in a position that you are waiting for go. That everything that from ready to go is being taken care of and you're saying, I am now waiting. See, ready doesn't mean you're waiting. It means you're getting ready. Set means I am getting into a position to where my next command is go and I don't want a second to slow me down when I hear go. Right? So Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. You can go to the next slide. So set, sometimes we have to set ourselves apart for that which will prevent us from going when we hear go. You have been set apart, Deuteronomy 14, 2. You have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God. And He has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be His own special treasure. Okay, you've been getting ready, you've been getting ready, you've been getting ready. Now you set yourself apart. You begin to make sure there is nothing tied to you for when you hear, go. Because you don't know what God is going to tell you to leave behind. Matthew 19.25 And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife 
our children, your firstborn, our fields, for my sake will receive a hundred times as much. And we'll inherit eternal life. You don't know what's going to keep you from going. You can go to go. You don't know what he's going to call you to do. You have to set yourself apart. You want to be married? Look, married people know you're going to lose yourself. You're going to lose your own identity. You become a group. You become a a new person. And your selfish ways has to go. You don't know what you're going to lose. Look, when you're what you gain is great, but you have to lose first. Okay? You don't know what you're gaining until you lose first. And you need to know that you're going to be willing to lose whatever it takes to answer what God has called for you. Because when go comes, he said to them, go into all the world... And preach the gospel to all creation. Here's the go. I mean, his disciples have been with him for three years. And here's the command. Go. Jesus has to be confident in his command. Go. He's fully confident in the men that he's raised. Because here's the command. Go. Matthew 28, 19, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. You see? Go to Acts uh, chapter 13. This is not on my <clears throat> excuse me, this is not on my slides, but this is good. It's on my um it's on my phone. I actually got this door in service. We're gonna look at the commands right here because okay, so I'm gonna give you guys our testimony and uh not too often that the preacher has to use one of these. <sighs> We're still dealing with being set apart. So um, we're going to see all three phases happen in a command. Um, we know Paul was separated for a while. He was at Antioch, and he had been there many years. And um, when, he was t- when it was time to go, we see this process, and this process is how it works. Um, bring up Acts chapter 13, uh, verse 1, and we'll roll with it there. In the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. It was very, very good um, spirit-filled church in Antioch. Very healthy place. Barnabas, Simon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Next verse. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, first of all, it's the Holy Spirit. This is God saying, set Apart for me, Barnabas 
and saw for the work to which I have called them. Here's the Holy Spirit preparing them and here's set them apart. There's going to be some setting apart going on here. Next verse. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed, notice they, those are probably the prophets and the teachers. These are the elders in this church. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. So who sent them off? Was it the spirit or was it the leaders? It was both, right? It was both. And so we know in the scriptures it says, let everything be established by two or three witnesses. I always wondered why or three. If two is sufficient, why or three? Because three is harmony. Three is a chord that cannot be broken. Sometimes you need three when the call is going to be trying. So Barnabas and Saul, which we will call Paul, know that they're being prepared for missions or ministry. Now they're about to go on a missions trip, right? They're about to go do a, a long-term missions trip. Took him wasn't a, a couple of weeks. It was a pretty good stint for him to make those trips. Uh, some of them lasted a couple of years. Um, so they went on their way and by the Holy Spirit, but by the authority that was in the church. And so three is always better than two. And so there needs to be three witnesses. You need to know you're sent. The, first of all, you know that because the Lord puts it on your heart to get ready. But when it's go time, when it's go time, you need to know it's time to go. Your elders and your pastors need to know it's time to go. And the Holy Spirit says, go. That is how you go. And guess what? I love our pastors here. We have the most amazing pastors and elders. Do you not trust them? Do you not trust them enough to say, look, I know you're called. I know you're getting ready and you're set, but it's not go. So we've waited a total for ministry 14 years. We've been waiting 10 years for Indonesia. And if our pastors say, don't go, even though we believe we've heard go, we want three. We want our pastors to say go. What do, whatever we need to do for their blessing, that's what we're going to do. So some of you may absolutely, in your heart, think it's time to go. Submit it to your elders. Let it be that three-strand uh, cord. Because where we're going, this is what was told to us. Indonesia chews up and spits out missionaries. In fact, our team, other, the team that we went and got to be a part of, two years was the longest, other than uh, Ron Parrish, who has been there 25 years, on that team the longest surviving team is two years. They don't make it very long because it's difficult. And I'm going to get into the testimony in a little bit and share with you why because sometimes you just don't know what you're getting called to. But even in marriage, you might think you're ready and you might think, God brought this person into my life. Bring it to your pastoral care. Trust them. I trust them with our calling. I trust them with my firstborn son. So sometimes you just have to occupy. 
there's a, in Luke, um, Jesus, the parable is being told and it says, the master's going away. Um, Occupy until I come as a King James. I think it says, make this money work while I'm gone. Both of them are applicable. I like both of them. But there should be some working going on while we feel there's this gap between uh, point A and point B. We're to occupy. And occupy actually means to stay occupied in what the last thing he told you to do. So you occupy yourself doing what he told you to do. Because sometimes we can think that we've done all that and now we're moving on. But make sure that you have done all that you need to do, that you're ready. Our Lord tarries because he won't come a day before we're ready. And look, when he, if he does, if the promises of God come and you're not ready, you're going to wind up like the foolish virgins. It'll be exposed that they weren't ready. I would hate that to happen in ministry, uh, a significant other, some kind of job, calling, house, finances, whatever you're waiting for, just get ready. Ready, set, go. Ready doesn't mean go, and go doesn't mean get ready. We have to be ready. According to what I saw in here, everybody's hand was up. Everybody is getting ready. Everybody is getting set for go time. Because when it's go time, it's go time. Indonesia. I'm going to share our testimony because a lot of people were like, came up and said, like, wow, we never heard Indonesia. We heard maybe China. But where did Indonesia come from? Well, that's the death of a vision and begin to look at your children's vision. Uh, starts actually 14 years ago. I had got into computers. And usually when I do something, I like to do it to the extreme. And so I had gotten some certifications and I told Trace, I said, this is, I'm going to go and I'm going to go into security. I'm going to go into advanced security because I can see 10 years down the road, this is going to be the most important thing. And I'm going to get this certification. It's going to take me about three to four years. It's going to cost, you know, $10,000, $15,000. But if I can get this certification, I'm going to be the top of the field. And to save some money, I got self-study courses. I invested all the money and I'm setting it aside and I'm planning out my schedule and I'm telling Trace, this is, I think it's going to take about... 18 months. I think I can do it in 18 months. If I do this from this time, I went through the whole thing. I had all these books, this course, this course. And my heart broke because I heard the Lord say, what about my word? When are you going to have time to read my word? I was like, well, I can read it like a daily schedule. And the Lord says, no, I want you to read my word like you're going to preach it one day. Like you're going to be a minister to take it to people. And I'm like, well, that's like, I'll always share your word. But I heard 14 years ago there would be a day when I would go into full-time ministry. And some of you, and that's 14 years ago, right? And so four years down the road, Teresa gets this dream. But at that point, I took all my books and put them in the closet. And they were there until the day we moved here three, four years ago. Never opened them. Because what God had for me was more important. So I set aside my career because I knew I was going to have to give it up someday. And so four years into this, um, Teresa gets this dream. 
you know when you get a dream, you wake up and you're like, it, this dream disturbed her for weeks and it was about Indonesia. It just, not just disturbed her, but she knew this was just not a normal dream. This was something happened because she woke up. She had this dream that we had flown into Indonesia. She didn't even know where Indonesia was. And we're getting off the plane and she had this understanding that we were going there to be missionaries. And look, we were part of a church that was about 35 people. There was never any missionaries. That was the furthest thing from our mind. And so she's sharing this dream with me. And she says, yeah, the Lord showed me that we're going to be flying into Indonesia one day. And she said, I went up to the beach. And it wasn't a normal beach. There was all these black rocks everywhere. And she said, and the waves just kept coming in and crashing. And I, and I had this sense that whatever we were going to didn't want us there. You know, you think... Oh, I'm going to be these missionaries. You see the pictures on Facebook. And we're all guilty of them. You see all the good stuff about missionaries, how they got to feed all the children and we got to do it. But you don't see the hard stuff. In fact, you don't get to know those things until a missionary knows you're called to be a missionary because they're not willing to open up to you about what they suffer. she realized that it wasn't going to be this type of ministry where you take all these cute little pictures and everything's great and that there was something there that was angry and the seas were raging. And she woke up and she said, Lord, whatever you called us to do, we'll do. And so for 10 years we've been getting ready. We had no idea what Indonesia was. And I want to share with you guys about Islam this morning. Because I didn't realize how ignorant I was about Islam and Muslims. There are 1.6 billion Muslims today. That's 22% of the entire world's population. 22% of the world's population is Muslim. By 2050, according to a Pew Research, I actually got where I got these statistics from. If you want to go check them out, check them out. By 2050, one in three persons, one in three persons, one, two, three, four, five, six. That means, according to the world, there will be two Muslims sitting on this front row. If that represents the world, more than two. If you got two neighbors, one of y'all is a Muslim. That's how much they're going to populate the earth. Over 80% don't even know a single Christian. They don't even know a single Christian. Give me the next slide. In the last hundred years, approximately four million Muslims have converted. Four million. That is 0.25%. That's a quarter of 1% of the entire population that's alive now. That's not alive over the entire century, which consists of three generations. Right now, 0.25% have been converted. It is the most unreached people group on the face of the earth. Muslims are the most neglected of all people groups. Why? Look at this next slide. 
can't hardly see it. But right in the middle, there's a red person. Can you all tell that the, the middle man's red? Out of a hundred missionaries, see that little red one? He's the only one willing to go to Muslims. One percent of missionaries go to the Muslims. Actually, the statistics according to about missions, they say less than one percent. It's a little less. It's not even a whole person. If we send out a hundred missionaries as the United States or anywhere over the world, out of a hundred, only one is going to go. And we know by statistics that after five years, 95% of all missionaries come off the mission field. I mean, how many do we actually have ministering to Muslims? Well, guess what? I have that statistic. I'm going to read something to you. You can go back to that, I, that uh, picture. I want y'all that to sink in. These are missionaries. And that one in the middle is going to Islam. He's going to minister to the Muslim who will make up 30% of the world's population. I have a quote here. It says, Islam is one of the fastest growing religions on earth with 1.6 billion followers. Yet ministry among Muslims is by far the most neglected mission field. Some reports claim that as little as 1% of the world missionary force is working among them. The Christian church has never seriously attempted to reach the hundreds of millions who are Muslims. The great missionary Samuel Zwammer stated, one might suppose that the church thought the Great Commission did not apply to Muslims. This is easily demonstrated by looking at some statistics concerning missions. Only 1% of the church's entire missionary force is ministering to Muslims. This means that there is about one Christian missionary for every one million Muslims. The church has more missionaries working in Alaska. And Alaska only has 400,000 residents. There are more missionaries right now at work in Alaska than among Muslims. We... We have a saying here. They're not God forsaken. They're church forsaken. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I understand. Let's go to that next slide. And this is why. Rada. Ertedad. It's a term given for one who leaves consciously or consciously abandons their Islamic faith. Rida. Uh, Ibrahim was sharing with me, doesn't mean something like death, it means to die. They've died. And so their commandments, Bukhari. Bukhari 52 260. This is a Muslim commentary on the Quran. And it is law to them. This is where they develop Sharia law from. The Prophet said if somebody, when he was talking about a Muslim, discards his religion, Kill him. I mean, that's a simple command. If he discards, if he leaves Islam, kill him. Bukhari 84, 64 through 65. During the last days, there will appear some young foolish people. Hopefully me and some more of you out there. 
This is what the false prophet Muhammad said. Who will say the best words, but their faith will not go beyond their throats and will go out from their religion, Islam, as an arrow goes out of the game. So wherever you find them, kill them. For whoever kills them shall have a reward on the day of resurrection. Um, the more I study Islam, the, the more I'm disgusted that they would use a term as the day of resurrection. The first one is saying, if someone leaves Islam, kill them. If someone persuades someone to leave Islam, kill them. In Sharia law, Sharia law, if a, if a Muslim population dominates a country, they either have a civil law or their civil law is Sharia law, which is run by the mosques and the clerics. And so when someone sins or caught a sins or leaves their religion, they are brought before the clerics. And the clerics can uh, pronounce their killing, and that's why they're beheading them left and right. So you're hearing they're beheading Christians. They're, because of Bukharari 84, 64 through 65, they are sharing their testimonies. And when they catch them, they're killing them. And they're going and they're trying them. And they're losing their life. But if you convert, if someone converts, and believe it or not, you know where a Muslim actually considers conversion? A baptism. See, it's not against them to actually believe in um, Isa, which is Jesus in their scriptures. You can even follow his teachings. But to be baptized is to leave Islam. And at baptism, they consider conversion. Because a lot of Muslims will go as far as to say we're Muslims that follow Jesus, but they won't be baptized. Because at baptism is where they're put to death. Let's go to the next slide. So how are we to view Islam? Islam is a great oppression over the people. Though we disdain Islam, we love Muslims, the more I begin to hate, I'm going to use that word, hate Islam, the more I begin to weep and cry over Muslims. Because um, Allah is Satan. Muhammad is his false prophet. And they have set up a false religion that the people have to die to leave. Not persecute, kill them. And the families feel it's their responsibility that if one of their Muslim uh, family members leave, the only way to keep shame from coming on the family, a family member has to kill them. It's called an honor killing. It means to regain honor back for your family because they shamed your family for leaving. So before, even if there is Sharia, they usually don't make it to the courts because a family member steps up and kills them. Luke 4.18 says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. Muslims are prisoners of Islam. You know why? Because the church has not gone to them. 80% don't even know a Christian and the 20% that do don't hear the gospel being shared. Because the Christians are too afraid in these countries. We just came back from Indonesia. And in Indonesia, if a Muslim would come 
and knock on the church door and say, we want to be baptized. You know what the church would say? No. We don't baptize Muslims. And I agree, you don't baptize a Muslim, but if a Muslim is wanting to convert, they won't do it. Because they're afraid that the church is going to get burned down. They're afraid that the pastor's life might be in danger. It's just too much of a... Because you know what the Muslims do sometimes? They send people to knock on the church's door to see if they will or not. But he has come to set the oppressed free. Islam is an oppression. And we, as a, a Christian body, everybody, not just LCMF, but every Christian up until now, has turned a blind eye. But this demonic religion is festering and it's growing and it's growing and it's growing and it's actually believed within a hundred years Islam could dominate the entire world. You might not be a Muslim but they will be in charge over you. They will take over every government and they will rule the entire world. If you don't think it's so, look how much they've grown in the last two hundred years. They've taken nation after nation. I wish I would have put it. But if you were to have gone and seen Afghanistan from the 60s to now, they didn't even have head coverings in the 60s. Now it's full burqa. You have to wear a full burqa to go around. In uh, Saudi Arabia, women can't even drive cars. Let's go to the next slide. So I'm going to share a little bit about Indonesia. What we found what we've learned, what our vision is, and what we're up against. Because if anybody here... So we've, I think we had maybe 10 families that were um, saying they believe that their call was on foreign soil. I hope our statistics are better than one in a hundred. If LCMF sends out a hundred, let it not be just one. Let's turn it around. Let's send out 99 to Islam. But we need to know what we're going to face. Next slide. In Indonesia, there's 206 million Muslims. Just to give you an idea, the United States has 300 million Residents. There's 206 million Muslims just in Indonesia. It makes it the largest Muslim nation in the world. You can look it up. Indonesia is the largest Muslim nation in the entire world with 206 Muslims. It's the fourth largest country on the earth. I did not, by population. And you can fit all the land like in Connecticut or something like that. It's just ridiculous. It's, when we were in Indonesia, at 4.30 in the morning, I could hear more than one mosque. That's how close they were. But the, the azan was going on. And five times a day you hear this azan. There is an oppression over the people. It declares its authority over all the nations it rules. It dominates the people and oppresses them. And Java, which is this little part of Indonesia here, so if you want to know where we're planning on going... That is the island of Java. 80% of all Indonesians live on that island. It holds Jakarta. Uh, Jakarta has like 30% of the entire 
Indonesian population in one city. It's only second to like Shanghai, China, something crazy like that. Java is over 90% Muslim. 90% Muslim. I know, depending on what HEB you go to, you might, get it, you, you might go and there might be 20% Muslim. You've never experienced 90% Muslim until you experience 90% Muslim. Changes everything. Two people like me and Teresa walk in a market, the market shut down. It did. It shut down everywhere we walked. It was just attention. We went into an area called Bantul in lower Yogyakarta. You want to know what percent Muslim? They pride themselves that there is no temple, no Hindu temple, there is no Christian church, and there is no Buddhist temple in Bantul. And I'm going to go through the whole procession, but there is a zero Christian presence there because they've been born under the rule of Islam. And all they know is this oppressive uh, regime, this repressive uh, spiritual principality. It's like the children of Israel. The funny thing is that God used Moses, one man, to deliver them. Why didn't he cause all of the Israelites to rise up and fight? Because they were slaves and they had mentality of slaves. And so for him to deliver him, he took Moses out of the, uh, among the slaves and did not let Moses live as a slave. Because as long as you have a slave mentality, you don't even go against Pharaoh. You don't even think of going against Pharaoh. And so when you go, you're like, but why don't you guys minister to Muslims? They're like, that's the craziest thing they've ever heard. It is. So God is raising up men who have not been raised under this tyrant. And it's not ignorance. It's just it's never exercised authority over me and I refuse to let it have authority over me when I go. Let's go to the next slide. Because God is calling us to Jogjakarta. Jogjakarta is a region on Java. It's where the red star is. And He's given us a, a two-fold, a two-prong attack to encourage and also evangelize. And I'm going to share our whole story. So, ten years ago, I mean, if you guys have time. Do you guys have time this morning? So, ten years ago, Teresa gets this dream. Look, I didn't get the dream. I'll be honest with you. I didn't get the dream. I don't need a dream. I had heard we were going into full-time mission four years before. I had forsaken a career. I wasn't pers- I have not had a certification in 14 years. And I'm in computers. It's unheard of. Because every time I go get a job, they're like, what's your certifications? I'm like, well, I had this, this, and this 14 years ago. Well, you don't qualify, but we really need someone to fill this position. That's how I got all my jobs. <laughs> so four years into it, I'm like, how do you get to Indonesia? I began to do research, and I don't know how you become a missionary. We didn't even know a missionary. We didn't know anything. And so um, we did meet someone who had done some missions work. They weren't a missionary, but they said, oh, look, let me give you some counsel. If you're getting ready to go to the mission field, he says, I got two things that you need to do. He said, one of them you need to go uh, be part of YWAM or you got to go to a missionary school. And 
The Lord never permitted us to go to a missionary school where you go and train up to be missionaries. Fire school of ministry, I'm not knocking it, but it's, it's a school that teaches you to be a missionary. It's a great thing. I'm not saying it's, it's not. God didn't tell us to go. We, were never, we even prayed about it, and the Lord said, no, I'm going to keep you in this little church of 35 people because the guy says, you need to go be part of one of those organizations because when you go, you're going to need the support financially. And that is the network. They're going to uh, get you all these speaking privileges at all these different churches and you're going to go and raise your money. If you're not a part of one of these associations, you never raise enough money. We never got permitted to go. And the second thing he said, now we only had three kids at the time, he said, don't have too many kids. We have six kids. We had as many. And a lot, a lot of people heard, every time we heard that we were having a child, was devastated. I was because I heard the Lord was calling us to do something. And I'm seeing it slip away. But I thank God He has His own plans. And He, has his, he goes by His own counsel. But when we had Lily, you can ask Teresa... I was like, well, I'm going to give up on it. When we had Luke, I was starting to look at my children as their calling. And that's where China came up because Abigail, since she was a child, wanted to be a missionary to China. And so we switched gears, said Indonesia is not going to happen. I accept it, Lord. So some of you this morning, you heard that the Lord's bringing you a significant other. He's giving you a ministry. And it's tearing and it's waiting. And you know, the, uh, they always say, you know, when you're, when you're going to be on a team of something and there's a group of people and, and you see people getting called out and called out and you never want to be the last one, right? I know what it's like to not get called and the game already started. Seeing all of our friends go into their ministry, seeing all of them, and I'm accepting... All right, God, it's your kingdom. It's your kingdom. And if you don't send me, I'll just count it that we missed it. Because if you called us to raise a family, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to raise, that'll be our ministry. It has always been our ministry, but I was having to lay down a ministry and said, it'll be just family. And... We laid down pretty much everything for the last 18 months. I shared with our pastors. I said, I feel like the Lord is just telling me to lay everything down. Every ministry aspiration I ever had, just lay it down. I'm not backslidden. I'm just going to die. Because <laughs> I felt like I was dying. Because there was something spoken to me 14 years ago that gave me life. Look, I love my children. But everything in our life began to draw us away from Indonesia and just draw us further and further and further away. And I didn't want to miss the Lord. You start questioning yourself. Did I not do something? Did, did I miss it? Either we heard incorrectly or we didn't get prepared. What is it? And so, October this year, last week of October, Teresa meets this lady at a pool. This is how Indonesia came into our life 
and how quick it's come. October 2015, um, actually in the summer, Teresa meets a lady and she, Teresa had a pool ministry. She would go to the pool and they would find someone to minister to and she finds this lady who has four kids. They're having their fifth and the woman looked overwhelmed. My wife can identify with that. So she went up to <laughs> minister to this lady and this lady is just pouring out her heart and she's saying, you know, she's struggling and she's overwhelmed and uh, they moved here and they missed their pastor and actually their pastor has now gone back to Indonesia. He's been a missionary for 20 years. He came here for a few years to pastor and now he's back in Indonesia. And she said, oh yeah, you, you have a, a pastor who's a missionary in Indonesia? And she says, yes. Teresa said, well, you know, we believed 10 years ago the Lord put it on our heart to go to Indonesia. But we've never met someone from Indonesia. Never met someone. How do you get someplace when you don't know anyone, right? So there's a difference between preparing and making something happen. Okay? You need to be ready, but God didn't tell you make it happen. Even in your preparations, you're going to see supernatural things. When you begin to decide you're getting out of debt, money's going to just show up because God is going to honor the preparation. When you're going to start saving up for a wedding, the money is going to be there. Whatever the situation is, it's not just money. It's whatever you need to be prepared. The Lord is going to supply it. But He doesn't want you to make it happen. Because that produces an Ishmael and you have to deal with that for the rest of your life or its life. And so Teresa shares with him. She says, well, you know, he's from Austin. Um, if he ever comes this way, we'll let you guys know. And so Teresa doesn't even tell me, right? <laughs> Until she gets a phone call. And um, he's going to be in town in two weeks. Would I like to go meet him? And so she's telling me this whole story from the summer. She didn't even let me know. So I have not made this happen. She says... A guy, a missionary from Indonesia is going to be in Sugar Land in two weeks. Do you want to go meet him? I'm like, yeah, I, absolutely I want to go meet him. And so I show up at this meeting where he is sharing their vision about Indonesia to his supporters. He's encouraging them, showing them the progress of the work. Everything's done and all his supporters are there and they've got all his time. And I said, I'll just patient, patiently wait. I'm not going to get between him and his people. So pretty much everybody's gone, and he walks up to him and he says, Hey, I hear that you and your wife uh, feel called to Indonesia. I said, Yes, sir. He said, How did that come about? And I just shared with him as much as I shared with you guys. I said, This is, is where we're at, right here. I said, We've never met from in, anyone from Indonesia. We were given two uh, points of um, guidance that we haven't been able to even uphold. We didn't go to a fire school of ministry or any ministry school, and we have a bunch of kids. <laughs> and he tells me, he says, uh, he says, really? He said, you know, I find people who haven't gone to those schools do just as well if they've functioned in ministry to some capacity. And he said, look, brother, if God gave you six kids and called you to Indonesia, then you don't have anything to worry about having six kids. So he said, I can't promise you much. He said, but I, I give you one week in Indonesia. I give you one week. He said, right now, I, I'm just getting back. 
I got a lot of stuff going on. He says, but I have this perfect couple I can put you with. They're in their second year. And they've just got out of their language school and they're just getting their feet on the ground. He said, they can tell you all that you need to know of how to get to Indonesia. And we were excited, so we're going to meet this group. Well, we started sharing with this couple that we were called to go to Muslims because the first thing they asked is they were like, are you all called to the Hindu? Because depending on where you're called depends on where you go in Indonesia. There's only one island where the Muslims are not the largest population and, and it is Bali. Bali is a small populated island, but it's mainly um, Hindu, probably about 90% Hindu. It's a stronghold for the Hinduism. It's the only island where they even make up 10%. And so he said, well, depending on where you're wanting to go, that's where you'll go. You know, I said, well, we're called to Muslims. He's like, oh, you're called, he perked up a little bit. He's like, whoa, you're called to Muslims? So, wow, that's what I believe. You know, that's what God put on our heart. We have a passion for them. Um, so, a couple of days later, I get a phone call from Ron. He says, actually, I want you guys to come stay with me a few days. He wanted to check us out, see what our vision was, what our call was. And so, some things started shifting and changing. And so, it's set. We're going to go three days and every, plan a set. We actually have every day that we're going to be in um, Indonesia filled to the brim. So we get there. Um, we meet. We stay with Ron Parrish for a day and a half. And we, had, we just share our vision. They shared with us all kind of things that were going on. We felt like they were like fa mother and father figures to us. And they felt like we were their children just in a couple of days. And so we flew in. When you go to Bali, Bali's beautiful. Oh my gosh, <laughs> Bali is amazing. Joke Jakarta's not. Right? <laughs> you go to Bali and the airport is phenomenal. It is gorgeous. You get down and you go into Joke Jakarta and it's like a, a high school locker room. I'm like, oh my God. It's the Teresa, you know, we always talked about squatty potties. Well, Teresa met her first one in Joke Jakarta and she said, that was the worst experience. She said, my pants are wet. My, it's. <laughs> It has not been a good experience. Her first uh, experience of Joke Jakarta was not good. And we turned around, and there was burkas, head coverings. We knew we were not in Bali. It was a shock. It was dark. There was a darkness. When I say extreme Muslim, it was all Muslim, and everyone turned to look at us because we were the only, I'll say white people, we were the only white people in Joke Jakarta Airport. Because Yogyakarta is not where the um, uh, tourists go. They go to Bali. And so we, I, I feel us walking through this airport and just every eye is looking. And so we meet up and we drive out and the city's not clean. It's not pretty. And we're like, we're not in Bali anymore. This is Yogyakarta. It's a darkness. There's an oppression. There's a mosque on every corner. And during um, the Azan, you hear it everywhere. So to speed the story up, we get to, we just want to go out. We want to see the people. We went and visited a few mosques. And actually, it was great because the people were so warm and welcoming to us. They knew we were Christians. So I got to go in the mosques. We actually got to go in the mosque during prayer time 
and watch the whole thing. It was amazing. I saw little babies like uh, um, all the little children here, not even able to walk yet, dressed in their um, worship attire, put on the floor, learning to bow down, sit up, bow down, sit up. And I'm like, this is ingrained to them before they can even speak. And we're going to, how do you rescue these people from this thing? And I'm thinking, my goodness, no wonder less than a quarter of 1% has ever been converted. No wonder Christians don't come. But we have a burden on our heart to go. And I can't shake this burden. I can't shake this call. It doesn't matter what it costs. The cost is too high not to go. So we're sharing. I, so I said, do you guys want to have a Bible study? His kids dropped everything they were doing. They all sat around. I began to share with them some of the parables. And I'm sharing with them. Now, this is the first time they're hearing some of these stories, right? And they're getting an idea who's this new God that their dad's been telling them about and who they've been falling in love with. And I shared with them the prodigal son. And they begin to cry. They said, because in Islam, the father would have killed him. My heart is breaking for these kids. They're all weeping and crying. They're like... We don't even know this God. He loves us. And they, they're, they're trying to uh, understand God in the context of Allah. And it doesn't make any sense. Because the son should have been put to death. And here he is running out to meet him. And these kids immediately recognize him. And they are weeping. And we're all weeping. And so they took us to the market. We had Bible studies in the morning. We had them in the evening. And it was the same scenario. Um, these children just eating it up. They told us, we've only been to church once in our life. And it's when we went to ja uh, Jakarta. They felt it was safe to go to a church there that no one would recognize them. Well, uh, Ron Parrish contacted a local pastor up in Jakarta in the north area. And said, hey, there's a family in Bantul that's Christians. And the pastor says, there's no Christians in Bantul. He says, yes, I have some people who are wanting to come to Indonesia to be missionaries. And they're at a home in Bantul at some Christians' house. Now, this is 7.30 at night. So we get a call from this pastor. He says, I want to come and visit you. And we're like, okay. He's like, tonight. <laughs> it's an hour and a half away. He drives down and he said, I didn't believe it. There's Christians here in Bantul. So I asked him, well, what's the area like? And we had to have a translator. He doesn't understand English and I don't speak Indonesian. He said, Bantul prides themselves being 100% Muslim. And all you have to understand that these Muslims community, they take pride in the, in, in the more Muslim percentage that they can have because they're more pure. He said, they're radical here. And he said, I didn't believe there was Christians living here. And he said, that's why I had to come here tonight. I said, so how many Christians are here? And he's like, none. There's no Christians here. And if they are, they're like they're living underground. I said, well, is there any churches? He said, no, no church, not one single Christian church, not even a house church, nothing. He said, I didn't know there was even anything in Bantul. Bantul is one of those areas where there's nothing. There's not even... Um, Hindu or um, Buddhist here. 
And he said, I had to come see them, and he has continued to contact them and visit them. And he said, y'all come to church tomorrow night. We're having a youth event, but y'all come to church. And so we go to church. There's only 12 churches in Yogyakarta. So think of Houston only having 12 churches with approximately 40 to 60 people in each church. That's what we're talking about. And so we get there, and there's like, there's about 50 people there. And he said, I want you guys to share. The pastor came to me and Teresa, and I said, Five minutes, ten minutes. He says, you got 20 minutes. I said, okay. So me and Teresa got up and we shared on um, that you are the salt and the light of the earth. I said, I know you guys want to hear who we are, but it doesn't matter who we are. It's about who you are. You are the salt and the light of Indonesia. You need to shine. And we talked about being of courage and not being of fear. That fear is the opposite of faith. And to be bold and have courage. You have no idea what these Christians are faced with. I didn't know. And look, ignorance just makes you judgmental, really. Why are they not willing to serve Jesus? You can't imagine. We have freedom, we have liberty, and we take it for granted. We're willing to give up our rights. We're willing to give up the freedom. We're willing to give up dancing and praising. And they would they have to die for it. So our vision is to encourage the local churches to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear, Acts 4.29, to plant house churches in Yogyakarta and Bantul and establish persons of peace and plant churches among the unreached and unengaged people groups of Indonesia. That is what we're going to do. And as the vision, you can't have a church in some of those areas, so you have to have home churches. And so um, the team, we actually sat while we're in Bali with the missionary board, all his missionary team and all these local pastors. And I'm thinking, my God, look what God has allowed us. We're sitting in our first week in Indonesia at this leadership meeting. And Ron Perry says, I want to welcome you guys to meet Brent and Teresa. They're planning to come work with us. And so after some of the missionaries come and say, how did y'all meet Ron Parrish? We've been waiting two, some of them said five years to come work with them. I was like, I didn't want to tell them this. is. I just met him two days ago. And, <laughs> but he recognized it was a God thing. Amen. We recognized it was a God thing. And we want to go work with them. And um, God's not, the Lord's been working for actually 14 years on this. See, that's what we don't understand. When he tells us, get ready, he's working too. Your significant other, he's working on them too. Your ministry, he's putting it together. Will you be ready? Because God is going to be ready when he says go. Amen.